Hello, I'm Mark Spiegler. Welcome to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, brought to you by UBS. Our first guest is the architect David Ajay, and in many ways, he epitomizes our goal here, to bring you conversations at the intersection of the visual arts, culture in its broadest sense, and society at large. Having long collaborated with artists, including Chris Ophelia and Olafur Eliasson, David was one of the key figures behind the remarkable debut of the Ghana Pavilion at the 2019 Venice Biennial. He worked very closely on this project with the late Oquian Wazor, one of his greatest friends and sparring partners. We cover a lot of ground, including collaboration across artistic mediums and Wazor's towering legacy and reimagining the role of blackness within both the cultural sphere and the art market. We truly hope you enjoy our conversation. David, when I was doing my research, I learned something I didn't know about you, although I think we've known each other for upwards of 15 years, mm-hmm. which is that you actually at one point were an art student. I was always in the art department, but for me, it was a kind of like respite. My art school teacher said to me, I can tell that this is like your log off time, but you're actually really good at this and you should pay attention and you should think about a career in it. And that's kind of how it all started. And what was great about the, that experience was that I found what I call my type of people in the world. If I identified a clan to me that I hadn't been visible and met in singular conditions, I suddenly, oh my God, there's a whole room full of people who are similar to me in interests that they have. And that was really profoundly powerful. There's another field, of course, which I think is very important to you, which is music. Very. And around that period, if I understand the history correctly, you also were not only a DJ, but also made music videos? Yes, I'm still obsessed with music. Maybe not in the same way as I was when I was much younger, but growing up in London as a teenager, I became very obsessed with how black culture expressed itself in public life. And I became a huge fan, like all kids, but definitely kids of color. So I became obsessed with carnival as a kind of outlet and as a kind of celebration of black life in English culture. I would also have the vinyl. And very quickly, people realized that Uh oh, David actually has the music. It's not just like a cassette. So I just started to play. So I started DJing with some friends and stuff. And so, yeah, I was a DJ for a while and and I had this huge collection of a certain particular time of mid 80s to mid 90s music. And then I gave it all to my brother. (laughs) Right. So that's where Peter Ajay has got an amazing collection because actually his brother collected all this great stuff and handed it over to him because I wanted to become a serious architect. And now I regret it (laughs) because I can't get it back. I think of you as someone who's worked very closely with people in other fields. And the first time I was exposed to this was when Chris Ophelia was awarded the British Pavilion in Venice. And you were chosen as the architect. And if I remember correctly, kind of tore the roof off of half of the building. Yes, I did. (laughs) I was struck, and I've still been struck in other times, by the way in which you move within a crowd of people who are similarly accomplished in other fields. And I'm curious how you think about that. Because I think at different times, different ones of you are in front, but you're all backing each other up. That's a really interesting read of the situation. But I think you're absolutely right. I think within a certain crowd, I feel like we're a clan. And I feel like we're a generation that are interested in a very particular way in which the arts, specifically the arts and all its kind of diversity impacts the world. And for me, the kind of conversations about collaborations, I have to really credit to my time at the RCA and this ability to go across different departments and to meet different thinkers, with jewelry designers, with painters and sculptors, to the three-dimensional designers, to fashion people, and being able to just sit and find common ground 
amongst us. And a lot of our conversations, I remember we always thought like, oh my God, like the thing you're doing would be amazing one day to do with this. And I genuinely meant it when I was saying those things at those times. It usually sounded like young banter, but I really meant it. I meant it in the sense that I have sort of always been fascinated to understand myself by by letting go of myself and to immerse myself in other spaces in order to see a reflection of myself again, if that makes mm. any sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah. As I was thinking about this, this clan, this group of people with whom you work, I was also reflecting on the differences between the disciplines. I'm curious if you've reflected upon the differences between the ways in which the people you know and respect work, the difference of what it means to work in one field versus in architecture versus art versus fashion versus music? No, absolutely. No, I have. And it is a kind of fundamental part of how I choose collaborations and who I'm attracted to. Because in a way, I am a sort of long-term thinker. I think very strategically and I think long-term. And I'm very interested in that space to find different durations of creative possibility, if I can say that, different cycles. I'm fascinated by people who have an incredible intuition about what they do and how it affects the world. It ultimately shows you something that you don't see in your world in a real way that you as an outsider look at from the outside, but as a creative, they allow you to wear their shoes for a moment. And I'm really fascinated by that. Rather than having this notion of the architect as the auteur, I think you're someone who pulls a lot of strings together and then of course has to create a structure out of them. You're doing an enormous project right now in Accra, in your homeland of Ghana, which is, I think, tantamount to what Hausman did for Paris or what Niemeyer did for Brasilia. I hope I didn't overstate it, but when we spoke about it six months ago, it sounded quite momentous. Look, there's no doubt about it. It's not an everyday commission, so I can't paint false modesty. It is kind of one of once-in-a-generation opportunity. My work... And my interest really is about building a new body of knowledge. And building a new body of knowledge in architecture requires being able to systematically re-examine the lens of the frame and how one engages with the very generous act of being able to make something in the world that has impact. You sort of described a second ago that I actually choreograph. I don't actually choreograph. I just seek specific ways in which experience can derive a very precise way of looking at things in a new way. So it's not the idea of the author and his body of knowledge in his head, but it's about making the knowledge have a relevance in the world that is not just from my way of looking at it. That makes sense. So in a way, like what I'm trying to do in Ghana for me is one of the first tests within the context of a nation-building project. This is a country that is just come out of independence less than 100 years ago and is forming its identity and forming its relationship to its other continental brothers and sisters as a nation and trying to emerge as a black race in the world with its cultures. And so for me, it had pre-colonial but has not had post-colonial is the ability to start to have a conversation about what can be the specificity of architecture in the 21st century for this idea of a modern nation that is joining the world and its full freedom and its full democracy. It's not about, for me, the age-old colonial project of just bringing something 
down, but it's about emerging a knowledge from an understanding of where we are with the history of architecture in the world, but emerging a knowledge which makes sense to this region and this geography and can be upscaled by this community of people called Ghanaians. David, concretely speaking, what's the scope of this project? The scope of the project is to create a national monument to the sacred side of the nation. So it's called cathedral, but it's really, you know, West African culture. West African culture is obsessed with birth and death and the idea of the spirit. It's now through the lens of Christianity. So that's what the theme is. And it's seen as a critical anchor to parliament, government, and the monumental core of the nation. The monumental core of the nation hasn't been fully formed. There's an area that is understood as the parliamentary quarter and the judiciary quarter and all that sort of stuff. And this government is wanting to really consolidate and establish what I'm calling a more formal monumental core, and that's my job. I'm defining not just the cathedral, but also a new public space for the city and creating a new relationship to parliament and trying to create an axis, which will then also create a relationship to Black Star Square, which is a really important civic square, uh, political square that was made by Nkrumah, the first founder of the nation of independence, that is critical within the sort of African psyche. So it's about setting that structure up and making it become visible and creating architecture that starts to speak to this idea and this vision. And then there are other projects which are also all about engineering Accra in terms of infrastructure in terms of it's finally addressing its coastal life, that it actually, instead of turning its back away from the ocean, it, it should turn its front to the ocean. So I'm master planning a way in which the city can integrate in different ways. In a very 21st century way, the city exists, and you break it, remake it, connect it, stitch it. Yeah. So it has a kind of houseman-like quality, but a houseman was about efficiency and infrastructure and creating. This is about literally building the elements that are part of the DNA of what this nation might be, you know, and it's imagining what this nation might be in 200 years of being one of the components of this. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. According to IMF forecasts, half of the 60 fastest growing countries in the world over the next five years are in sub-Saharan Africa. There is also rapid growth in the local art scene, with 60% of art dealers on the African continent anticipating higher sales this year. Will this confident growth continue? For more insights, visit ubs.com collecting. And now back to the show. I always tell people who ask me that you should never take a job that doesn't scare you. That's my golden rule. Yeah. Um, The more scary it is, the better it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the sense that then you truly have something that you're not going to take lightly. No, I like it when I feel like, holy, I need to now really pay attention. Yeah. There are a gang of us who are very capable and can do many things. And you get to a point also when you've been doing, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I know exactly what I want to do and how I do it. But you get to a point where you can start to get dim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sort of flatline into what you do and, and that's it. And, you know, that's my, my greatest fear is boredom, <laughs> professional boredom. 
On the topic of Ghana and to bring it back to art, I'm considering 2019 to be the last year of the art world as we knew it. Yes. And hopefully it was. For the rest of this year, we come back. But I mean, obviously, for me and for many people, one of the most amazing things that happened in 2019 was the Ghana Pavilion in Venice. Mm, thank you. And this was a project which was supported by the same government, which is now, Absolutely. you know, which has now appointed you to rethink and to rebuild yeah. Accra. Tell me about that project. And of course, the presence of the late Oquian Wazor within that project. Tell me what the process was of doing this pavilion, which really spotlighted what Ghana was already that you knew, but other people didn't know. My dear friend Oqui, who is no longer with us, of course, and is a very important partner in crime and really thinking about the continent and probably really absolutely critical to my pivoting more to the continent. We discussed endlessly about the absolute urgency of institution building and critical work on the continent. And the fact that actually what was happening in the world is that without that criticality happening on the continent and without a formation of the creative identity of the continent, a lot of the things that we're hoping for, waiting for it to come after economic success, would render a horrible simulacrum world that none of us were interested in. I'd worked with Oakley on his manual, All the World's Futures, and I was his architect for that. So I'd really learned through him how the biennial worked and what it did. And it just struck Oakley and I that Ghana being the first independent nation of the continent, that there was an opportunity to really, especially with this new government coming in, which had a strong agenda of the world re-seeing what Ghana was, to really use that opportunity to bring Ghana back to the table of the arts. So actually, the thing was crafted completely with Okui, and it was really discussed as a project, first project, which would start to really shift the optics that you just discussed. And I'm so happy you said it the way you did, because that's exactly what its intention was, to reimagine the lens of blackness and its diversity, and also its specificity, and to start to understand the impacts that different clusters were, and to really imagine an art world where there was a different creative spectrum of emergence. And that it was about really creating a different frame. We wanted to create a different frame to really talk about that Du Boisian experience of how Black artists operate in the West, that they work in a double consciousness, that they work in a two worlds of a past history, even a fictional romantic history, but one that is based in things, fragments, and then their presence in the world that they're in in the West and how they have to kind of negotiate that and how they're negotiating that and negotiating what the West sees as relevant and current. And it's this idea of this duality and these worlds that we wanted to use the opportunity of the Arsenali building opportunity to create a world that was somehow based in history, but also fictional, based in a narrative, but also the kind of like birth of an art world. <laughs> we know that the art world has a tendency to sort of flash its spotlight on different regions at different times. Correct. And since the Ghana Pavilion, despite the pandemic, there's been a real surge in attention for Ghanaian artists and West African artists in general. Yeah. But I see it as inevitable that at some point the spotlight shifts somewhere else. And I'm curious, as a strategist, <laughs> how do you keep the momentum when the spotlight shifts? 
So I have no magic trick to resist that because uh, that is the art If there was, I would be bottling it and I certainly wouldn't be telling you on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can tell me later. We can trademark it together. Okay, go ahead. But, but all I know is that the issue is not really about even being concerned about the gaze of the spotlight because that idea of the spotlight and relevance through the spotlight has been completely now made irrelevant by a whole generation of West African artists and African artists who are moving past this idea of waiting for a spotlight before you emerge and kind of create a sustainable ecology is to then start to actually shift the issue from being about the art market and about the commerce of the art world, which I think is where the thing slips, to becoming about art and social space and art and society. This is, again, a project that Oki and I discussed a lot. This idea of then absolutely, with any emergence, building a resistance by imbuing it into the social fabric of communities. Because the biggest issue in the continent is that actually these incredible artists in the art world are absolutely operating in an abstraction to the society. They're not embedded in the society in the way artists have been embedded in the West in their communities. They operate in a hyper-real art market, which is flying 30,000 feet above them. And the art world grabs it and says, oh, this is hot, this is interesting, this fits with our thing. So to have and to stop the depression from when the light goes around, the ecology of this has to be embedded in the community. And what we're doing with the cathedral is that we're embedding about going on 35 artists that are working specifically in all different spaces of the building. About 10 years ago, I came to you and I said, David, it's important to me that we have galleries at Art Basel that are not from Africa, that are not South African galleries. And I remember you pointing out Marianne Ibrahim to me, of course, who has done an amazing job in the States, but of course is of African descent. And it started many years ago with a gallery from Tunis called Selma Fariani. And then we had a gallery from... Egypt called gypsum, and we're conscious of the fact that we need to create a more credible path for people who are coming from the peripheral parts of the art world. We just did this online viewing room, Portals, and we'd included two galleries from Africa. One was Adi's Fine Art from Ethiopia, and the other is a gallery called First Floor Gallery Harare from Zimbabwe. And I'm curious, do you see gallery scenes emerging? Do you see collectors emerging to support them in West Africa, in Ghana, in Nigeria? A hundred percent. It's already started. There's a vibrant ecology and several significant artists are also realizing that they've taken the mantle on to incubate and create spaces for emerging artists in the absence of institutional commercial operators doing this in the normal traditional way. There have been several that have erupted. I'm speaking specifically about Accra, which had nothing. And then suddenly there's a collection of galleries that are suddenly operating and creating an ecology. And it's a healthy ecology. And you go to Abidjan, there's a the same thing. You go to Senegal, there's the same thing. You go to Nigeria, there's the same thing. So suddenly there's a collection of these spaces, but they need to have entropy. They're selling to collectors. There's also an emphasis on selling to black collectors, which I think is really, really strong because that's also how you create sustainability, that you're not just the artist and just produced to sell to white collectors because that's ridiculous. It's about creating also social justice sustainability models within the black community because that's also how you're going to encourage a healthy ecology 
of art patronage on the continent, if it's on the ground as well. And that we have to be cognizant of that because actually what you want is a true representation of the production of human creativity, not just the few capable and privileged. And that requires much more specific lens reading of conditions to be able to bring those things up. Because in the end, when the art is there, it stands up to anything else. And I think once you start to break that, there's an opportunity for a much more healthy growth of these different places. And actually, finally, the destruction of the light bulb, which is about one system searching for new trends, which is really a very capitalist model, which I think is deeply problematic. I understand capital, but I'm very distrustful of the idea of like what's hot and what's new as the engine of success of the art world. I'm more interested as I get older in how we create sustainable ecologies and how those ecologies create sustainable communities and how those communities create bodies of knowledge and how those bodies of knowledge help us all understand who we are on this planet called Earth. You brought up the issue of race several times. It's something we haven't really discussed yet. And I was listening to a previous podcast where you were talking about how you felt that the art world was more porous, more open-minded than the architecture world, which kind of scares me because I don't think of the art world as being particularly porous when it comes to the issues of race. If I look around at the number of Black-owned galleries, as with other cultural fields, the talent is much more likely to be people of color than the owners. A hundred percent. Still colonial. You started as an art student and you worked with a lot of artists. You built houses for artists. You were remarkable in that sense. But do you feel as a Black man in the art world that things have changed significantly in the 30 years that you've been present within it? Yeah, it's not enough. But I think 30 years ago, just think 30, 25 years ago, Oakley was just emerging and talking about Black artists in the world. It wasn't even a discussion. It wasn't even a discussion. It wasn't even on the table. And he was seen as fringe. And remember Oakley's documenta or his show in South Africa, even talking about the importance of photography and black photography as a credible art practice that was totally overlooked by just doing the first Venice Biennale where he had only 40 black artists and 135 and people thinking it was like a ghetto. These things were not even possible. So I think that the art world is going through a reckoning. I think that it's just at the beginning. It's not about dominance or, you know, it's just about equal justice for all creative people. That's the whole thing about it. And to stop the systemic parasitical relationship of the old colonial model of white wealth, black creativity continually being sponged and to level that. I think that the art world is starting to address that. There are lots of systemic things happening that are there, but architecture hasn't even woken up. It's just beginning to sense that, oh crap, pants are down and have been down for a very long time. It's like the elephant in the room. It's 2020, what is it, 2022 or <laughs> Good God. You know, Virtually, and, yes. And, and this is the first time the RIBA has given a medal to a black male, black person. It's like, what? <laughs> There's almost that inaccessibility. This invisible velvet rope is something that's used strategically. You know, and I'm curious how you think about that. I think that it's the kind of natural instinct of any system that's made a monopoly and wants to survive. It's also the natural reaction of a monopoly that knows that it's getting away with something that's actually not right. <laughs> that's when you start to protect your interests. You know, you protect your interests when you know you're actually gorging <laughs> and gaining. Honestly, I think it's crazily counterproductive for the art world it's for, for people to do this. And it's actually destructive. It's destructive yeah. for the art world. And actually what's ironic about this generation of Black artists and this inclusion that is happening is that it is the very thing that will breathe more life into the art world and make it relevant. Because the problem is that if you keep doing that, 
you end up making yourself irrelevant. <laughs> a new ecology will form that will be counter to your ecology and will shut down your ecology. Nothing is forever that we know. <laughs> and so in a way for me, the emergence of diversity is literally the salvation of these arts institutions because it's making them relevant and relegating to them in a much more, you know, art's job is not just to be about beautiful things, it's to be about empowering and educating society all the time. And without this conversation, the art world is literally a fanciful little self-engrossed, gorging animal that's actually quite gross when you think about what's actually really going on. I don't think any of us want to be in the business of helping plutocrats trade trinkets with each other. That's really not why we're here. What is the point of a life for that? (laughs) That's not what it's about, exactly. And those who don't understand it and think about it as though they're doing somebody a favor are so grossly misunderstanding the profound time that we're in and the profound opportunity of, sorry, Black people actually wanting to engage. (laughs) Because if it doesn't happen, they will disengage. And it's not about wanting to come in. It will create parallel worlds. It will create other worlds. And that is the disaster of the whole thing, I think. The potential disaster, I hope. Exactly. The game is played on two sides. It's not a colonial game of you doing a favor. The funny thing about the colonial project is that you go and exploit and you get, and then you're addicted, and then you can't live without it. (laughs) So you need it. But then you keep thinking that you're doing it a favor. And it's like, uh... This is not well, I mean, it's interesting. Your culture and your whole identity is through the consumption of others. <laughs> you know, so how do you? I mean, move? it's interesting if you think about this colonial metaphor, mm. because there were some countries, some empires, mm. where the former colonies, the French, I think, were pretty good about this, were welcomed and were seen as an extension of France forevermore. Formally, and others that blocked off their former colonies. I think, if in the same way, if in the art world, the paths are not opened for the people who are traditionally marginalized, not only as our artists, but also as collectors, then something will be lost or something will be built in a completely different realm. Talk to me about the building of the museum in Benin, in Nigeria. Yeah, Imoa, as we show, the acronym is Imoa. Well, I mean, think of Imoa as a very much an extension of the conversation we're having, which is that if you want to create a critical social ecology, you have to build incubators and produce places that produce and archive and reimagine knowledge directly on the continent. It's one thing to keep taking in terms of artists to the West to create an image of our diversity, but it's also critically important to create an ecology on the continent. And for me, Imoa is the first attempt post-colonial to create a historical museum which is dealing with the issues of restitution, the issues of artifacts and culture, the issues of memory, social memory within communities. There have been lots of what I call independence projects, independence museums in Senegal and everywhere else that have tried to talk about the heroism of Africa, etc. But this is really talking about in heading straight and dealing with the other elephant in the room, which is to do with the extraction of the creative heritage of the continent and the fact that it's displaced in the West. And so there's this bizarre imbalance of that nothing happens down there. Well, when you burn it all and you take it away, what do you expect? How do you restitute knowledge and how do you create knowledge back on the continent? And it's simply one step at a time. It's like you 
build institutions that matter. You engage with the conversations that are critical to creating a much more equitable and social relationship within the art world rather than the colonial model. Let's just keep using that word. What's nice is that because the art world, the way art world operates, it's happened almost as though the end started first and we're going back to the beginning. So Emo is almost like the beginning of the story. So yes, there are these fashionable artists that are now being collected everywhere, but let's just try and understand the trajectory and the place that these people come from and how does that empower and help the societies and the communities they're in? That's what Emo is. Emo is about showing those communities the value of creative art and what it does in the world and how it can be a sustainable part of their economies and their ecologies in the way that it sustains ecologies and economies in the West, but in a different way, one that comes from their direct providence and one that can start to also give a backbone to the artists that are emerging on the continent in terms of showing their pedigree and their history and their trajectory and their relevance in the art world. You moved to Ghana and you moved your family. I live in Accra. I, I live in the center of Accra. I'm lucky enough to be able to live in the center of Accra and uh, my family's there. We love it. We're able to be in the world, but Ghana is home. Because of the critical work that I'm also doing now at this stage of my career, I've moved everywhere and I was in the U.S. when I was building the National Museum of African American History Culture, I moved to New York and more or less lived there and delivered this. And I'm doing significant things on the continent now, and I feel it's completely right. The inherited colonial model is to stay at home in what would be the comfortable comfort of Europe and then to fly in and out. Well, you know, I would do that. The Chinese ask you to kind of go and build a house and we build an amazing cultural system. People just run and open offices and move there and I wouldn't do it for Africa. Why? And it's like, I don't want to play those games anymore. I don't want to play the games of the program. I want to be free creatively to work completely, clearly and consciously in a very explicit way that delivers excellence wherever I can. You're someone whose time is incredibly valued, and I think it means that you could fill every minute of your day with other people's demands. And I'm curious, how do you continue to find inspiration and creativity despite your success? It's a really important thing. And I think that it's always moving out of your comfort zone and always moving out of your sense of entitlement. I think for me, making sure that you have challenges that are real, that really do question your sense of how you see the world and shift it. Having goals that are beyond the commercial, that are really truly social and about humanity, uh, humanitarian. And continually looking at the power of the diversity of the continent and of the continent and world and how it has something to offer for meditation of every decade of your life. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have had three decades in this business and I see new things now. I see different things to what I saw in my first decade. I see new things and I'm profoundly moved. And at the same time, even though a lot of things have been done, it looks like there's a huge mountain in front, ironically, still. So the great thing about creativity is that it's a continual process. And as you just finish one thing, another mountain presents itself and you try to climb that mountain again. I'm a very restless soul. You're restless, but you're not chaotic. I remember we had dinner one time both of us were talking about what it means to lead a team that grows and grows and grows and grows. And I remember there were two rules. I think we've devised them together. One was ideally only do what you do best, understand your weaknesses exactly. and try to find someone who's good at doing those things. And the other one is only do what only you can do. And I'm not great at that. Maybe you're better at it. I'm curious, are there rules to live by for you? Art world or otherwise? Gosh, my problem is that when I make rules, I break them. I'm a really terrible... Everybody does. <laughs> so I'm very nervous of visualizing rules, but I think that philosophies, the ones you've said, have been absolutely guiding principles. At this stage, I feel like I've mastered those two rules, and I'm interested in other things now. 
I only do what I want to do now. And I think that that's, for me, an incredible creative freedom. And it makes the work better and it makes me stronger. And now I'm interested in new fields, new mountains to climb. On that note, thank you very much, David. Thank you. It's wonderful to speak to you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.